0: Hello and welcome to the Data Cafe. I'm Jason
1: and I'm Jeremy and today we're talking about apple tasting.
0: Apple tasting. We're gonna have to give a bit more context for this one I think. What are we talking
1: about with apple tasting Jeremy? Well context is everything as we'll find out and yeah I mean well this is a bit of fun. This is a scenario where you have a conveyor belt Of apples going in front of you maybe you're a grocer who's decided to really major on the (laughs) the apple market and you realize that you need to make a fantastic reputation for yourself as a purveyor of extremely high quality products and apples and so you're wanting to weed out uh, rotten apples on your conveyor belt and get only really perfect apples to the shops right uh, so how do you do this? You're employing a, a tester, and you know for the sake of argument, this is just a, this is a person who's looking at the apples, and as they go past, is going, ah, oh, I think that's fine, I think that's fine, and then suddenly spots one which maybe has some blemish or something, and then they go, oh, that might mean that the apple is not not as good as it might be, mm, a bad apple. <laughs> a bad apple. <laughs>
0: And this person is looking at them manually, but we've said tasting. Are we implying that they will have to actually pick up the apple and taste it? That's the sampling process that we're indicating.
1: Right. So here's the uh, the fun part, if you like, which is that in the thought experiment, which is, which is apple tasting, the tester has to taste the apple, right? Um, if they're suspicious that it might be a bad apple. So... They pick it up, they taste it, and they can tell for certain once they've tasted it if it's a bad apple or not. But that comes at a price, right? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't want to buy an apple that had been tasted by somebody else. I think, I think that's really what we're saying here. Yeah,
0: they're not going to pick it up, taste it, and say, that's a lovely apple. The customer looks forward to that one.
1: Put it straight back in the box off to the shop's with you.
0: so they've picked it up and tasted it and found that it was a bad apple so they're glad that they have discovered that and discard it i guess and it doesn't get to the customer so they're doing us a favor in that regard protecting the customer's interests, which is the focus here yeah
1: yeah they're they're doing us a favor when they get that decision right and they're um, causing some level of harm i suppose to the grocery business if they get the decision wrong they pick it up they discover it's an absolutely delicious apple they can't very well put it back on the conveyor belt they can't send it to the shops anymore that's now a wasted product that's a product which can no longer be sold so you've got this sort of jeopardy going on in this in this hypothesis you've got some You've got some interesting information uh, which could be used to indicate a possible problem and then you've got this jeopardy which is I can taste the apple and find out if it's really true, if it's really bad, or I can let the apple go by and risk a really bad apple going to the customer and wrecking our reputation.
0: I often get reminded of Schrodinger's cat with these situations, if you want to check that it's in the box. You've ruined all hope that it was alive if you discovered that it was dead. And in this case, the apple is dead in some manner of decay. Um it's always the way I kind of remember from college, framing the quantum principle. But we're right at the macro level here and we're interacting with the customer's product. So we've come across some constraints here. And really, the question is, how is this going to be relevant to
1: data science and the setup that we're getting at? Yeah, I love the idea of Schrodinger's Apple. That's really nice. Um, yeah, absolutely. So what is this at heart? Because I think you know, the, the data science of Apple tasting per se has probably not got that huge, wider appeal. But actually, this is a really nice statistical testing problem um, that is something which a lot of data scientists, I think, will come across at some point, maybe, if they're working especially in operational-based industries or in uh, advertising, online advertising, or anything like that. it's It's really something where... You've got this, uh, this observation of a product, of an item, of an interaction with a, with a user, which is indicative. It's an indication of there being some value or some cost, in the case of it being about Apple, in the data. And then a further test which can uncover the real truth, but has a high cost or a higher cost associated with it. Yeah. And that's that's the uh, the setup here. It's this this indicative information, and then some kind of higher cost outcome as a result of uh, a result of the test. Yeah. So I, I think that's that's what makes it interesting from a data science perspective.
0: It's interesting to put the cost on the sample at the sample level, as opposed to the cost of an experimental setup in the first place, because as a data scientist, it doesn't really cost me anything to look at my data but it's how that data flows that gives me a
1: context that puts a cast on it. And then, crucially, what decision do you take? A fully rounded data scientist goes, well, what's the decision I should take based on the outcome of this experiment, or many experiments, of course? Now I have an idea of what decision I could take. What's my optimal strategy for taking decisions in this context to enable me to maximise some, some value, of course?
0: And you had a interview with Professor David Leslie, a Professor of Statistical Learning in the Department of Mathematics and Statistics at Lancaster University. I think he sets it up really nicely for us to hear.
1: Oh, I'm joined in the Data Cafe today by Professor David Leslie. David, welcome. Thank you. Uh, So we just had a lovely talk from you about contextual bandits and Thompson sampling and all these magnificent techniques and I think the first thing I really like to to sort of focus on is a point you made right at the start, where uh, you emphasised how important it was from a statistics perspective to focus on the decisions that are being taken by a technique, and how that really drives everything in terms of the importance of the approach. So, is there a particular example where that's really proved to be true for you?
2: What we see a lot is that the stats community will focus a huge amount of effort in getting the best possible estimate of the truth. When actually it'll make no difference at all to the the following decision. And so you you might care is my parameter one or 1.1, but actually if the the decision that you make as a result of that doesn't change at all, there's no point in putting your effort into the inference. That you need to focus much more on moving on to the next problem where you can actually find out something that changes what will happen.
1: Yeah, I think that's something I've noticed in working in industry is that, you know, there's this desire to make things absolutely fantastic, but actually better is often quite, quite good and and desired. And if you can say 20% or 30% improvement, then that's, that's a, that's a substantial win. It might not be the 42.5% that would be optimal, but it's still more than good enough. So I've, I've certainly seen that.
2: Well, we also see the same in tuning machine learning models. Okay, so if we uh, we can spend a lot of time trying to find the correct parameter for tuning your model, but really the, the performance surface near the, near the best parameters is very flat almost all the time. You very quickly get to a region near the optimal, And then you can spend huge amounts of training time trying to get to the best parameter and you get essentially no difference in performance. That's why it's so hard to tune it perfectly because there's very little signal. And so you're wasting a huge amount of effort for no real benefit in the performance of your algorithm. So you you get this disconnect between the, the people doing the tuning and the people using the system at the other end.
1: Yeah, so one of the frameworks that you talked to us about in your talk was was contextual bandits, which is essentially a framework for encapsulating the, the algorithm and the decision. Do you want to just give us a little bit of a, a, an insight into how contextual bandits could be super helpful in this?
2: Okay, so I'll start with non-contextual bandits where you don't get any signal. And so you sequentially take decisions one after the other, and you've always got the same set of things you could choose from but there's no difference from one time step to the next in terms of uh, the reward for different actions. So if you were advertising, you would be taking no information about who you're advertising to, you just push out an advert, and then you push out an advert, and you push out an advert, and and you assume you get the same reward irrespective of who you're showing that advert to. And that's crazy. if you go to a contextual advertising setting, well, then you get some information about who you're showing the advert to, and then you show the advert, and it allows you to have estimate rewards of adverts depending on the characteristics of the person that you're advertising to, and so you can learn personalised advertising strategies by responding to what you see before you make your action selection. Hmm. You could also think of uh, an example where you are looking at learning to teach a robot to learn how to act okay so the robot can either go left or right on any particular situation Uh, and a non-contextual bandit will just tell the robot okay you can go left or right learn which one's better but if you give it a contextual bandit approach you will let the robot look at what's out there before deciding which direction to go in and so they will learn what the best action to take is depending on what they see and so the the point about going from a non contextual to a contextual bandit is that it allows you to react to what you see when you're making your decisions
1: super and then one of the applications that you then uh, used your contextual bandits in was in an area called apple tasting which uh, for me spoke to any company that's doing manufacturing or process production Uh, and needs to test products needs to look at their quality control across their product line as whatever products they're doing are being produced. It has this really interesting uh, model to it. Uh, So would you like to tell us a little bit then about the the apple tasting setup? Because I I think this is a lovely example.
2: Yeah, so the apple tasting is a a version of the contextual bandits, where on each uh, time instance, you get a signal, telling you something about the the world or the product that you you may or may not decide to inspect you then decide whether or not to pull that one off the production line and look at it and if you look at it you can't sell it anymore so the the apple tasting problem is you you have to pick up that apple and bite the apple uh Mm -hmm. maybe you you kind of prevent that sale happening to a customer uh and so that, that. slows down your revenue but of course if you don't look at it you will never know if it's good or bad until the product has gone to the customer with potentially bad outcomes if it should have mm-hmm. been tested. and so the challenge here is to make sure you inspect enough of the products to learn a good model of when it is worth interfering in the process of releasing the products to the customer so if i don't know which signals signal that i've got a bad product then I can to do this effectively and so I need to inspect and learn which ones might be bad even before I go now of course the really challenging thing here is if the the mapping from signal to outcome changes through time mm. uh, you know all of our theory is set up in a very stationary world where those mappings are, are fixed through time but of course if things are fixed through time you don't we need to monitor them because <laughs> the world's okay and so the real challenges we're trying to explore now are keeping up when the world changes a bit so uh, say something a machine is breaking can we detect that there's something going wrong in the system and then you need to make sure you keep exploring things if you get a signal which would have been a good signal of things being okay in the past you still need to explore that enough to check that that is still a signal that things are okay because otherwise you might start releasing you know any number of Bad product to the market before you ever learn about that
1: fact. So, in the context of contextual bandits, so that you, your signal is your feedback from your your test of these products as you as you select them, as you test them, and you see which ones are bad, faulty, defective, whatever, and which ones are not, which ones are fine, and then you're you're learning, you're storing that information, you're you're encapsulating it in distributions or whatever. And that allows you to then make better decisions next time round. Is that it?
2: Essentially, yeah. So, but the signal is not, so we have the signals, which are the context, which are the things which we see anyway, whether or not we make the test. So in the apples, it's the, it's the appearance of the apple, you know, is it slightly scuffed? Is it a bit off color? Right. Uh, and then we decide whether or not to intervene and take a bite to make a measurement of, is this apple actually a good or bad apple? And then what we're trying to learn is that mapping from appearance to the good or bad label. Uh, and we need to make sure we take enough, we bite enough apples to
1: learn that mapping. So there has to be, there has to be an indication. There has to be a hole in the apple or some brown discoloration or something. Or in the context of a product, there has to be some something that you might... Be able to observe some from a photo, a video, or a, a rattle in the box, or something, which might indicate it's no good if it looks just the same as every other product. You've got to have a tiny indication at the beginning.
2: Well, so um, there is earlier work on if all the products look the same to the the tester, how many of them should we bother picking out to work out is the system going bad? That's a that's a separate area of research called statistical test control. Yeah, but this bit of work is where you get some signal. Yes, so example I gave in the seminar of um, fault monitoring on a network okay you get some indication as to whether or not this is a fault uh, you know if, if we, we observe some data about the fault that has been flagged up and we need to decide is this worth sending this to a human to investigate or not and so with the information the, the context is the current state of the network And then we need to decide whether or not to ask the human for a label for, yes, that is a proper problem, or no, that's not really a problem at all, that just happens.
1: But in each of these cases, there is a cost to doing so. So either we've we've destroyed the product, eaten it, or, or at least made it, you know, so it's beyond other other humans to be able to uh, to eat uh, by by biting into the apple. Or alternatively, we've incurred a cost just by sending it for some kind of human inspection, and that itself is costly because it's uh, it's more expensive to do that.
2: That's exactly it. Yeah. So the, the intervention action costs something. The non-intervention costs you nothing unless it's a bad example but also non-intervention costs you data for the future. Mm-hmm. So you don't get to learn about the things that you sent out and haven't tested. And so you can't use them for improving your model of what's good and what's bad. And so that's something we always see in this bandit world where we have the, the immediate reward, but also the, okay, do we learn for the future or not?
1: Mm-hmm. This idea of expiration versus exploitation you know when is it worth me putting in the effort to to look beyond what i know currently and and discover something i didn't previously know that i could later exploit
2: exactly and if we take that back to advertising if you stop showing an advert forever you will never learn if that advert is now a useful advert to show because you're not gaining any more data about it so until you've decided to start showing that advert again you don't learn anything. Right. Same in clinical trials for drugs. That was the first place that many of these methods were described. If you don't try a drug, you never find out if it's any good. Equally, if, if you get stuck on a drug uh, and there's new ones coming along, but you don't explore them, you'll never learn if there's any better ones.
1: Yeah, well, I, I suspect we're all, gonna, all going to learn something from a whole set of vaccines in the very near future. So, so that, in its sense, will be a, a nice piece of experimental bandit work that we can, <laughs> we can track.
2: Actually, join me. So the big Oxford clinical trial, the recovery trial, that was designed by one of my colleagues in Lancaster. Oh yeah. The stats of it, and he was using adaptive trials methodology, so that as methods were coming in, they were they were focusing their efforts on those treatments that were working best, uh, or that there was most to learn about quickly, and then throwing out treatments when they were no good. And so that was the method that they used to really, really quickly find. The first effective treatment for very ill COVID patients, and quickly threw out the Donald Trump's treatments, shall we call them, uh, the ones which were never going to be useful. But the, the the trial very quickly worked that out, and so they didn't have to keep allocating those bad treatments to trial participants through time because it was adaptive and did things through time.
1: Excellent. I'm glad to hear we discarded the bleach option quickly. <laughs> Yes. So I think that's really, really exciting. And I think a real triumph of that has been the speed at which they've been able to come up with uh, effective treatment. So what a, what a success story for, for the field.
2: Yeah. So being adaptive in the trial instead of dividing out evenly among the different treatments and then trying all of them till the end of the trial. Being able to be adaptive and throw things out and, and adapt to what you're seeing as you go was critical for the speed of that trial.
1: David thank you very much for joining us in the data cafe today that was really fascinating.
2: You're very welcome thank you it's been really enjoyable chatting with you.
0: One of the points that I really really liked that David highlighted was about how much effort or expense or cost of some sort it takes to really refine a model to a degree that maybe is not necessary because the decision won't change and echoes some of our earlier conversations on the podcast about how important it is to consult with your user, your subject matter expert, the customer, if you can, about what is the decision or the action that you're going to take and have we reached a level where we've given you the ability to confidently do that and any additional effort kind of above that MVP we've mentioned before, that minimum viable product, if it's now viable, Let's get that decision made and find the gains in the customer's benefit before we go back to enhancing the model
1: further. So I think every data scientist at some stage in their life tends to come across the the situation where you realize you could refine and improve quantitatively your model, your algorithm, your approach to a greater extent. But actually, you know, down the line you realise that, you know, the last three weeks maybe of work hasn't led to any kind of improvement in the decision, you'd still have had exactly the same outcome from your algorithm. And so, you know, in hindsight, maybe you could have stopped previously when the algorithm was just good enough and just giving you that decision process, which is properly optimal for the use case you have. It doesn't have to be perfect. I think, you know, perfection can be the enemy of data science sometimes, especially in the industrial context.
0: Yeah, and that industrial context speaks as well to supply chains or longer processes where you may be part of that process but there could be something feeding it that itself has an error bar let's call it and that error bar doesn't need you to then tweak beyond that level because you can't carry that forward if you've got such a high accuracy it's built on top of an earlier process and then has a downstream aspect to it that could have its own compounding errors. And we've seen this in our um, physics classes where you have to look at how your errors compound. This is really telling when we look at how much tuning and fine tuning we can do to a really cool model, you know, especially in machine learning, for example.
1: But is it worth it? Absolutely. I also liked the contextual side of David's talk which was to say particularly the landing this uh, fun example in a topic actually we we've, we've covered to some extent before on on data cafe which is that of multi-armed bandits and the particular additional flavor now that we have for multi-armed bandits which he's given us the heads up is is contextual multi-armed bandits so i think probably we need to give a little bit of guidance now on 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 how that fits with the apple tasting
0: i read a paper um by google that they put out about their auto ml but it was for contextual bandits and the line was the setup for a contextual bandit problem is that an agent observes repeatedly a context perform an action and receives a reward that depends typically stochastically on both the action and the context from the environment and I thought it might be useful to unpack that definition a little bit because you're bringing in that context from the environment so you're no longer just doing a sample which is your action and looking at the reward you get but you have the context additionally now. Yeah so
1: what does context mean Mm. in the scenario we have and then in other scenarios as well but in in the apple tasting context the contextual element is the discoloration on the surface of the apple, or it's the, right. the mould, or it's the, the, the misshapen uh, apple that's going in front of the tester. It's crucially this signal, this notion of signal, which is an indication uh, of something being wrong, and that's the context from the environment. It's some level of sensing that's going on that is not itself a complete giveaway. It's not giving you all of the information. It's cheap to gather. It's easy to see or observe or measure or collect, but it's not maybe able to give you the complete deep exploration into, into the underlying problem.
0: Yeah. And I read um, another line that said, the goal of a bandit formulation is to minimise regret, um, which it defines as the difference between the cumulative reward from what would be the optimal policy and the trained agents cumulative sum of rewards. So again, to unpack it, if I regret trying all of the good apples, that's a high cost to me. And um, the terminology of regret is really nice to describe it there. And maybe I'm gonna get a stomachache, right? I've tried so many apples at this point when the bad ones are the rarer ones, and I don't want to
1: have such a high regret cost. By trying all the time exactly we we've got this notion now of the algorithm, the bandit algorithm, which is just it's a lovely setup it's just an algorithm where you have these levers in front of you, these options, these decisions that you can take, and each one of them has a reward distribution some level of value if you like associated with it, um, it doesn't have to be the same, it can be the same it can be. A pound for one, two pounds for the other. But it's more interesting if that varies. You've got this notion of therefore there being an optimal decision. There, there, you know, I should be always pulling the two pound lever, or I should I should alternate, or something like that. Or I should I should always be picking the rotten apples uh, and discarding them, and I should always be letting the the good apples go to market. It would clearly be the optimal policy, and the regret is the difference between what you actually do. And what perfection would look like were it to be achievable? Of course, there's the, uh, the uh, 64,000 apple question.
0: Yeah. And I think the way I was looking at regret is even not the right way yet, because really it's a regret for the business model in this case. You regret that you could have sold those good apples, but you were wrong to try them as opposed to um, letting them through and only removing the bad ones.
1: David actually indicated there was, was even another level of regret. It's not seen in those terms, but there's an extra loss or an extra cost certainly associated with letting an apple go, which is that you don't get to find out. You don't get to learn the correspondence between the signal and the actuality of, is it a bad apple or is it, was it the right decision to take?
0: And moving away from apples, um, we can imagine any sort of a manufacturing pipeline, uh, for example, Drugs and the process of drugs being either effective, say in the case of a painkiller, or statistically maybe one of them is just whatever one in however many thousands or millions is ineffective. Mm. How can we be sure?
1: Yeah, exactly. This the nice thing about this is it applies to many different scenarios, and, and one of them, one of the obvious ones, is manufacturing pipelines. So in the picture you're painting, if you had that painkiller and, and one in ten was was ineffective. You wouldn't necessarily know to look at it, but maybe there's some signal. Maybe there's some context which you can test yeah. for that is taste Test cheap. and not taste. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Because obviously the th- thing you can't do is take it and see, because that obviously destroys the product um, and might be risky in the case of uh, a drug, of course. But maybe, I don't know, maybe for the sake of argument, the weight of the product is indicative. Is your signal? Maybe there's a small, tiny deviation in a in weight, but not. It's not completely a complete giveaway. Maybe it's just a fifty percent probability or something that the painkiller is not as good if there is this small weight deviation. But that's much higher as a signal than just the the one in ten, one in a hundred, one in a thousand, or something that might be your random selection probability of getting uh, of finding one of these tablets. But you have to have a test. So you, maybe you drop your uh, tablet into a reaction uh, vessel and find out. But clearly, once you've done that, you can't, you can't then sell it. Yeah.
0: And uh, when we talk about this testing process and we get to the numbers of one in maybe millions, you can see how testing something like, say, the weight of them, and maybe it has to be a really accurate test if that weight difference is so small, has its own expense. And we really need to balance how much testing against all of the expense, against all of the reward and what our measure of regret is and how important that quality is based on who our end customer might be.
1: Yeah, I mean, there is interesting analogy with the, the current pandemic situation, isn't there? You know, the testing has a cost. Uh, it's, not, it's not infallible. Some of the tests are better at producing true positives than, than others. And there are false negative rates as well. So, you know, it, it is only a signal which is indicative of do you actually have uh, the virus or not? So I, I think there's some really interesting analogies with the current testing framework that we're all learning so much about. But you're absolutely right. I mean, as soon as you start playing with the costs of these activities, the decision environment becomes really interesting. Imagine it's not a painkiller in your example. Imagine it's a, some expensive cancer drug or something that costs you know two thousand pounds a dose you know you're prepared to probably put in place quite a sophisticated sensing framework in order to avoid losing a two thousand pound dose of really important drug in that setting so it can make a massive difference to what you're prepared to do and where you're prepared to put your investment in that scenario
0: Another thing that occurs to me as we talk about it is maybe there is a learning that also happens off the back of it. Because if, in the apple case again, I learn that a certain level of discoloration is normal, maybe for a red apple, and there's a crossover before that discoloration indicates that it's a bad apple, I might be learning these levels, these thresholds. So once I have more and more information, my entire process can improve over time. It's not static in its own right.
1: Yes. So in the greater scheme of things, this is clearly, as all multi arm bandit problems are, this is clearly a reinforcement learning problem. And if you know nothing, if you have no initial association in your learnt memory store of signal to outcome, signal to decision, then it, you know, that's something where you can learn by testing. You can test everything. In this case, you lose everything or you can test at a very high rate and let less through. But then the more you test, the more you learn, the less you test. Conversely, the less you learn. The hard thing that David alluded to, of course, is what happens if halfway through your learning process or indeed just halfway through your manufacturing process, suddenly the signal to outcome process itself changes either. Maybe you've got a fault in your measurement device or maybe the manufacturing process kicks over Without anyone telling the people doing the testing into another manufacturing process, and suddenly there's something else that could go wrong, or something else that is now indicative, and the weight is fine. Maybe they fix the weight issue completely in the manufacturing process. So, if you, if that signal changes, and the the relationship, statistical relationship between the signal and the outcome of whether it's a good product, bad product, faulty product, well working product, changes, then you know picking that up and doing so quickly. Is really challenging, and that's clearly where David sees a lot of the new, uh, you know, new interesting research going in the in the future.
0: So I'm going to ask um, my usual question about what the cutting edge might be. We haven't talked about possible algorithms or how to apply this and get value from it.
1: In the sense that it's a reinforcement learning problem and it's a contextual bandit problem. You know, there are some there are good tools out there, uh, which. Pick up on these tuples, if you like, of of experience. And your experience is your observation paired with your outcome or your test. And the the reward that you got or the, the cost that you saved as a result of that. So in the sense of it being a reinforcement learning problem, you can build your process around that. I think what David's looking at is more detailed and has more statistical meat to it. He talked in the talk he gave us about Thompson sampling, which looks at the having prior belief about your environment and about how the signal is related to the outcome, and that's that's you know super interesting. So I mean, there's some really nice things to get stuck into uh, in, into there. But I think the real cutting edge is where you have what's called non-stationarity, which is. Statistical way of saying when stuff changes, right? So stationarity is your friend. Stationarity is when the amount of reward you get when you pull a particular lever or you uh, you choose apple, good apple, bad apple, is pretty much the same throughout your experiment, throughout your manufacturing process. Yeah. Non-stationarity is where you have these changes, and it's either a non-stationarity in reward is is a bugbear for reinforcement learning and for uh, for bandits in particular you want your rewards to be broadly predictable they can be random they can be sampled from a distribution but it's when that distribution changes that you're in potential trouble or at least you have to have algorithms which are prepared to react to that and the question is how fast can you react to those changes either in the reward itself or in the this signal to outcome association that that david alluded to
0: So we can kind of see how the manufacturing process has some level of stationarity to it. But if we brought this into the world of advertising, you're going to have so many more factors because customer demands could change quickly. You could bring in seasonality, you bring in fashion trends, bring in um, unknowns you know, about the kind of phenomenon that just take off and you don't know how people will react. A massive and
1: pandemic, for <laughs> instance. <laughs> yes, <laughs> anything that would just just drive a coach and horses through all of your prior yeah, experience.
0: Really, really interesting stuff. I think we really got to the core of this apple tasting problem. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, Jeremy. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for joining us today at the Data Café. You can like and review this on iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. Or if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us, jason at datacafe.uk or jeremy at datacafe.uk, or on Twitter at datacafe podcast. We'd love to hear your suggestions for future episodes.